Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavanagh here on TRSI. Today is Sunday, the 22nd of the 11th. I'm here today with my friend and colleague Michael Dwyer. As I was going to say always, but occasionally Michael is a bit tardy. But most of the time. Tardy or tiredy? I mean, you are rather an old man, Michael. Tiredness is sort of your natural state at this point. Entropy. You're a wonderful example of where we're all going. Your slope is just a little bit steeper. Cheerful as usual, Gary. Okay, good. Can we move it along? So we have somewhat of a, of a theme to this show. Not deliberate, it's just the news that is interesting at the minute. Has a bit of a theme. It's all about information and the control of information. What you can do with information. So there's a couple of things we're going to touch on. Um, some letters that were signed by some NGOs about transgender rights and deplatforming those who disagree. How the hate bill or the hate speech sorry, actually the uh hate crime bill is being covered in different media study that came out recently which is going to cause an absolute shit show and is already kind of causing one but i don't think it's quite got its stride yet because it says things that you can't say even if you can back them up and explain them in a very nice way well it's not that you can't say them because they obviously they have said them so much you're not supposed to say them and people like them should know better yeah, you can say them but you know, shortly thereafter after people point out that you shouldn't be saying <laughs> your work may be removed yeah so for a brief amount of time there was some freedom but i wanted to start on the topic which i am the most unsure about and i am the most likely to say something which comes across as unpleasant or just Kind of, you, know, you can hear the clang of it as it hits the ground, like a fucking anvil. So the this is about the uh, the leaks, the leaks of sexual images that have been reported for the last couple of days and have led to renewed calls in the department uh, and in the media, sorry, and amongst politicians for revenge porn laws. Yes, and I'm not really interested in these leaks as a whole. I'm interested in a particular part of it, and it's this. The understanding that's been put forward is that some of the leaks are from relationships. They are private uh, photos and videos that were given to boyfriends or girlfriends who then took them and made them not publicly available, but distributed them to other people. That's one thing. The second claim is that there are there is material from underage girls in there. I haven't seen any proof that this is actually the case, and I'm not going to go and look, because that would mean accessing something which potentially contains child pornography, which is uh, not a great legal position. I, d- I did do a little bit of work, uh, Michael, on Facebook and grooming pages, particularly uh, Middle Eastern and Asian grooming pages. And the legal advice we got when I was doing that was basically, don't touch it, don't look at it. There's no real provisions for reporters. So if you accidentally access something, you've got a real problem immediately because law does not care. And let's face it, we've had more than one example of prominent persons uh, having to come out in front of cameras and say, well, actually, I was doing research for an article. And the thing is, Gary... Not one person out them possibly bar their mothers believes them. Yeah, and then you're you're going to be screwed unless you get the right judge. One in particular, no. whose name I won't mention. Then you tend to sail off into the sunset. I mean, it's yeah, it's just the way of things, Michael. It's not like I would be illegally importing garlic. 
and, and yes, and evading the correct tariffs. So that that's the second part of it. That may or may not be true, but it's being reported as if it's true in various arms of the media. Now, I have not been able to find anything to back this up. That's the thing. A victims group is apparently saying that this is part of the material in it. But it doesn't sound like, from reading the media, any of them have gotten access to it. So it seems that they are believing the, um, the victim group. Maybe without proof, maybe with proof that just isn't being made publicly available. And then there's the third one. And the third group, their material did not come from relationships. It came from sites like OnlyFans, which for those who don't know, is basically a subscription website where people can set up their own little enclave and people can subscribe to have access to it. It is heavily used for the production of pornographic or sexually titillating material by young women. And I assume some gay men as well. Oh, possibly straight men. Uh, and possibly straight men. Yeah, I mean, it's, they, it's, they may it's, be straight men, but you know, there's a market there. I mean, gay for pay is a thing. Uh-huh. Yeah. And that is the third group. Now, no one seems to quite know what the breakdown in this is. I suspect from the way it's being phrased that the majority, possibly the vast majority of the material in this comes from OnlyFans not from relationships. And here is my um my issue with that Michael. Yes. In when we start talking about revenge porn and violations and the need to consent to the sharing of intimate photos. I think if you share something from a private relationship whether or not it should be a criminal offence is one thing but you're kind of a scumbag. Like that person had a legitimate expectation of privacy or should have, and yes. you breached it by distributing it to other people. I can see the argument for that to be a criminal offence. Whether or not I agree with it, I'm unsure, because to be honest, I haven't really thought about the area enough. There are obviously some potential civil liberty issues with it, but I'd have to look at it more to kind of see where I'd fall on it. If you have an OnlyFans, and you are producing sexually explicit or sexually titillating material on it, you don't really have a right of uh, an expectation of privacy. Because you are effectively putting it out on a market. Anyone with money can come in, can sign up, and get the material. I imagine not that much money. I mean, it's not, I can't imagine these things are 10,000 quid a pop. No, no, you can you can set a price. Uh, I had a quick, I, I've never used it, but I had a quick look at how you set it up earlier today. And it looks like you can pick a price from, you know, like 5 euro a month to 50 euro a month for a subscription. But you, you are effectively offering material of you. To the public. Now, it's on a private market, but it's to the public because it doesn't look like there's any... If someone wants to subscribe, they just subscribe. You don't need to vet them. You don't need to put them through any processes. If they have the money, they have access to it. There can be no expectation of privacy there. So, and this seems to be lumped in as revenge porn, or as uh, the ICCL, the Irish Council for Civil Liberties, are saying it's image-based sexual violence or sexual assault, and that these people are victims and they're, they've been violated. Now, to put forward what I suspect would be rather an unpopular view, I accept that they've been violated, but I think they've been violated in the same way Metallica is if you pirate an album. Well, yeah, it's... You're... <laughs> You're doing them out of money rather than anything else. I mean, it's a copyright violation. It shouldn't be a criminal matter. You are producing pornography. You are a pornographer. Or a, at least a, or a, neurotic, a neuroticist. Yeah, let's just go with a sex worker. Mm. You are a sex worker. You have, they've breached your copyright if they, you know, you set it up so that 
it limits further distribution. But there's no breach of privacy. There's no nothing of that sort. So this whole sort of everyone I know has seen it. Well, in relation to that aspect of it, you were selling it. Yeah. So yeah, anybody that want you know that wanted to see it could have seen it already. Just if they paid the five the five euro, is the objection that they saw it or that they didn't pay five euro to see it? Well, the, the, apparently because this you know this was distributed without consent, it's a violation and it's it's sexual violence. And I can see that. I can see the argument for that in relation to people who had uh, private photos that you shared with a loved one or your partner at the time. And in relation to uh, photos and material of minors, obviously deeply illegal. Yeah, but the, uh, sorry, on the thing about minors, surely making possessing or distributing obscene images of a minor is illegal already it's highly illegal it's in fact in some countries it's they've actually run into a bit of an issue with um particularly young girls taking photos or video of themselves and sending them to their boyfriends where both are underage yes but that is then technically the production and distribution of child pornography and i would be interested in this case because if I'll just put an example here, Michael. I have no way of knowing if this would have happened, but I also have no way of knowing if there are actually any underage or verifiably underage photos in this or material of any kind. Let's say someone signed up for OnlyFan and lied about their age and falsified an ID or whatever their... Whatever... I actually don't know what security measures they have in place to stop that happening, but you can falsify an ID quite easily. So at the very best people can still get onto it. And let's say instead of being 18 or 19, you're 16 or you're 15 or you're whatever age. And you produce material and you sell it to other people and it turns out that you're underage and it ends up in this trove of images that were leaked. That won't be a problem to the people who downloaded that because they will be able to say that they, by virtue of the fact she was on it and there will be some rudimentary age verification at the very least, they had reason to expect that she was 18 or above. Mm-hmm. We saw this case in a similar case in Ireland involving a nightclub and a young girl who a man slept with and was then charged with uh, statutory rape and was able to basically go, they're in a nightclub. I had every reason to think they were over 18. I have no, there's, there's no mens rea here. There was no, there was no desire to commit a crime. Mm-hmm. So the people who got that material will be absolutely fine. The person who produced that material, on the other hand, would have a very uncomfortable time, Michael, because they would have produced and distributed child pornography for profit. Yes, that would, on the face of it, be that would seem to be the case. Yeah, so that that will get deeply uncomfortable for them. But as I said, I've seen no proof of this. I've actually, I've seen no proof of the makeup of these at all. It's probably still available online, but as I said... Once someone alleges that there is child pornography in something, you're not going to touch it. Which is actually quite a good claim to make, regardless of whether or not it's true, because it does quite slow down the ability to actually check something. Right. No, I, I, like, I've seen people saying that, you know, the only, focusing on the only fangirls, that they were, you know, this was a violation, it was sexual violence, all this sort of thing. And I just don't see it. I think it is fundamentally different than someone with an expectation of privacy. And while saying neither of these things should happen, on one hand, you have quite a serious breach. 
and on the other you have a copyright disagreement. I don't know, is that, is that unduly harsh or is that un- unduly legalistic? Should we listen to the voices of the victim here, Michael? Well, it seems to me that it's, it's obvious on the face of it there are two different things. That if you're in a, if you're in a, in a, in, a, in a relationship with somebody in a romantic relationship with somebody, and for whatever reasons you just you make a tape of yourself involved in an intimate act with that with a with that person, listen there there are always going to be things that you're going to do with somebody who is with whom you are in love that you really 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 wouldn't want other people seeing, or in, and in fact a lot of other people knowing about. It's this is a very and I could sense the that if that was then to become public and I said the sense of violation could be shocking because that you are in that most your most intimate most private moment and also it's about it's a terrible betrayal of the relationship the emotional side of it as as much as anything on the other hand if for the for ten quid a month you post video of yourself or pictures of yourself doing things either by yourself or with other people. And you're doing that for hundreds or thousands of people, and I meant for my, what I can understand, obviously, since it's been done for money, then you want it to be thousands rather than hundreds. And by, I discovered actually a lot of people make quite a serious books out of this. Oh, OnlyFans, if you're good at it, is I mean, it's a standard, it's a, it's a standard example of um, the impact of being able to draw in a large amount of small donations. It can be serious, though. Anyway, it seems to be that's a fundamentally different thing. You're not... If you are sufficiently successful in a place like Ireland and not have a million-only fan, I can't imagine that happens. But It's not a question that somebody you know or somebody in your family discovers these things, but rather it's just a question of how long it takes for that to happen. And really what you're, you're upset about is that somebody has taken what you're, you're doing it for money and then publishes it for free. Uh, I can see that it would be upsetting. I can imagine situations where people, I suppose it would be fair, particularly all of us have a, have that sense when we use the internet that we're doing something that is, with, in a sense, communicating with the people we're communicating in at that moment. And we forget that we're essentially in not just a public, but a global theatre. And not much has to go wrong for it to be available to the whole world. And also that it's not just, ter- it isn't for a transitory moment, but it's permanent. So I can understand, if I want to be des- really fair about it, that people mightn't have thought this through completely. But I, I, I think I'm being, you know, if you're, you're showing off your bits and you're doing stuff, doing the dirty deed with people, friends or strangers, and you're doing it in return for money, it's, it's a... F- you, you ultimately, it's a, it's a, it is about it's about image rights, isn't it? Rather than anything else. I mean, it seems that the way I would I would look at it as I see people going around saying people who are saying these things aren't the same are victim blaming. There's no blame here. I, I I don't. If you want to do whatever you want to do, that's that's fine. But you are accepting a certain principle, which is that you are willing to put this on the open market for money. So there's no expectation of privacy because there can be no expectation of privacy. And you accept that either having considered it carefully and decided it's worth it or consider or you just do it, not realizing. But either way, it is the foreseeable result of your actions. 
I would, in fact, it's it's quite similar to this podcast, I would say, Michael. Like, if I were to say something about a politician to someone else in confidence, and they were to then broadcast that I had said it, and it damaged me, I would be deeply unhappy about that. Yes. I, because I would expect that a person I told who would respect you know, the confidentiality of it, or would have some thought for my privacy and issues it could cause to me. But if I call a politician a cunt on this podcast and it gets back to them, that's on me. Well, yeah. I did it. I put it up. I should know that anything I say on this can come back to me later. Yes. And that is that is the deal with it. I mean, we have listeners. They're effectively consumers. They, they... No, but, but Gary, you know, that's not to say that if they wanted to send in 10 euro a month, they can. I mean, don't put, don't, yeah, we wouldn't discourage that. I mean, if people, I think it's, we should understand, we should make people understand out there that we're doing it for free, but it doesn't mean that we can't take presents or gifts. No, I mean, if you wanted to go to grip.ie forward slash donate, uh, you know, and agree to, you know, a monthly donation, we definitely wouldn't say no. Yeah, well, Grips, no, that's Grips, listen, Gary. I'm talking Christmas is coming, ten times are hard. You know, make sure, if you're sending it in, send it in to, to, to Gary slash Michael, or just to Michael, you know. It doesn't have to be money. Nice bottle of wine, champagne, chocolates, socks, vouchers for Louis Copeland, anything at all that they'd like to send in. I'm perfectly happy. I'm not proud. Anyway, go on. So, we have listeners, they're basically consumers. Let's say we said something fucked up, put it up anyway, and I deleted it. And they had archived it. They still have a copy of it. That's still my fault. Yes. Yes, it may be a breach of copyright, but it's my fault for doing it. And the nature of this is that I have to accept that can happen. I might be deeply unhappy that someone would do that and then send that material to whoever because it was damaging. Mm-hmm. But it, ultimately, it would be my choice. Where you, know, I allowed the situation to happen. I agreed to do this. Whereas in a private conversation, I think it's it's entirely different. And that's basically the way I see this. If if this is largely... I mean, if this comes out and it turns out to be largely or entirely from OnlyFans, that's not a criminal matter. That's not an outrage. That's a large-scale copyright dispute. And I just... Fundamentally, I just don't think they're the same. And I don't think they should be treated the same. And I don't care about them the same. Mm. One is damaging to someone who did nothing to deserve it and you could say yes they shouldn't have sent those photos or materials but ultimately people are going to do things in relationships that at the time seem perfectly reasonable with people they trust and then later turn out to not be worth that trust that's just the nature of life and if you're not willing to accept that in a relationship well then don't send images to people or don't have relationships ultimately it's something you send in confidence selling sexual images of yourself to everyone is not done in confidence. It can't be done in confidence. It's a market transaction. Yeah. Have we gone further than George Hook did when he got screwed on this issue? Um, George, different issue, different language, different. I wouldn't. I. I wouldn't invite parallels there, Gary. Why not? They're always fun, Michael. No, no, Gary. Sometimes they're not fun. And uh, you know that perfectly well as you go out. As my friend Susan would say, out with a lamp looking for trouble. Yeah, I have a feeling that, that eventually when something falls on us heavily, it will in fact be something you said. Oh, I don't doubt it. I, I've long since re- resigned myself to the notion that it'll be like the life of Brian. I'll be up on the cross and Gary will come by and say, well, uh, pity about that, but uh, I'd love to stay in chat, but I have a lunch. Sorry, from 
from an issue about information control and copyright to an issue about who gets to speak on a platform and who gets to send their information to other people, which is partially the right to speak and is partially the right of others to listen, which I think is actually an important one that we tend to forget. So in it was uh, Trans Day of Remembrance on Friday. It was. For those who don't uh, keep up with the comings and goings of the LGBTQ plus community in Ireland, to the extent that I do, the last week anyway. And as part of that, the, um, an open letter was sent out. And it was, it was your standard kind of open letter. It was very long and not terribly well written, but they're activists, they're not writers, they don't need to. But it had this, this line, which I thought was interesting, Michael. Yes. Now, the background to this is that the LGB Alliance launched in Ireland. Now, the LGB Alliance is effectively uh, kind of just old-school gay, lesbian, bisexual rights organisation that basically thinks T shouldn't be associated with it because T is not a sexual orientation. T is something else, which is perfectly correct. And then they have various concerns depending on, on who they are. But they are... Gay Community News published an article calling them um, a hate group. So that will give you a sense of, of where these guys are. Their launch in Ireland has provoked a fairly bad backlash from the NGOs in the space and of all types. They don't like this. They don't like anything about it because, you know, these are their people. You don't get to just break away the LG and the B. Keep the good parts. You don't get to do that. But here's the line from the um, from it that I thought was interesting. We call on media and politicians to no longer provide legitimate representation for those who share bigoted beliefs that are aligned with far-right ideologies and seek nothing but harm and division. These fringe internet accounts stand against affirmative medical care of transgender people, and they stand against the right to self-identification of transgender people in this country. If you're curious what affirmative medical care means, it means if, let's say, a child goes into a doctor and says they think they are transgender, affirmative care means that you will work with the child to transition, rather than saying things like, are you sure? Or, would you like some time to think about that? Which is the, well, not just the recommended, it is the mandated uh, disposition of the American Psychiatric Association, who have uh, advised therapists working in the area that if a therapist does not feel that they can affirm the client, if in this case a child, if the client is a child, if they cannot uh, affirm them in their gender choice, then they are not really suited. They are not uh, in a position to be uh, that person's therapist. That they can't have a the correct therapeutic relationship with this with the child. So uh, that so affirmation is. At least in the American Psychiatric Association at the moment, it is the, the recognised standard of care. So it's very clear from the... I'll, I'll archive a copy of the, uh, of the uh, letter below the podcast so you can have a look at it if you want. But it's very clear that this is directly targeting the LGB alliance and people in that space. And whatever, these, these sort of things are put out all the time. But that line, I think, is an explicit call for these people to be deplatformed from pretty much everything, not to end up on TV, radio, social media, politicians not to engage with them. This comes on the back of uh, an, when the LGB Alliance uh, launched in Ireland, the Independent ran a 
pretty aggressive hatchet job on them. And the LGB Alliance wrote to the editors and requested a right to reply. Yeah. Which is a very useful thing to know you can do if you ever get hammered by a newspaper. You can absolutely ask them, can I reply to that? Mm-hmm. And a lot of newspapers, either because it makes for good reading or because they are concerned about legal aspect of it, will give you that right. So they wrote their own article and basically were far more positive towards themselves. Shockingly, Michael. Yes, quel surprise. But this pissed off Gay Community News. They wrote a number of articles attempting to fact-check it very poorly. Very, very poorly. And they were deeply unhappy about this. So we have a letter that's openly calling for the deplatforming of a political view. Because it would be gender-critical in the terminology. And whatever about that, as, as I said, it's, it's just a long kind of meandering thing. The interesting thing I thought, Michael, yes. is when you look at who has signed on to it, because you have, you know, the generals like the Transgender Equality Network of Ireland, Gay Community News, LGBT Ireland, you know, the National LGBT Federation, all of those kind of people. Yes. And, you know, the, the trans pride organizations, obviously. But you also had, and here's what I thought was interesting, you had the Sex Workers Alliance of Ireland, Mm-hmm. You had the Abortion Rights Campaign. You had the Migrants' Rights Centre of Ireland. You had the Irish Network Against Racism. You had... Um, Sorry, just to... You had the Migrants' Rights Centre, but you also had the Migrants and Ethnic Minorities for Reproductive Justice. Yes, so that would be MRCI and MEORJ. Yes. You had, as you said, Amnesty International. So we had Amnesty International, and we had the Women's Rights... Um, Oh, sorry, the National Women's Council of Ireland. Yes. So, Amnesty International, Michael, calling on the deplatforming, arguably the removal of all social and political representation of a group. That doesn't seem very amnesty-focused. Well, uh, what is it? I mean, I don't keep up much with amnesty. My memory of amnesty, uh, my brief connection was we used to buy a candle from an amnesty and you'd get the name of somebody who was in prison for conscience issues and you you could write them a letter or send them a postcard or something my sense of amnesty is that that isn't really their business anymore so what precisely the business of amnesty is it's like proker it doesn't seem to be in the business of hunger anymore it's but rather setting up um, social justice networks in nicaragua we call on media and politicians to no longer provide legitimate representation for those that share bigoted beliefs that are aligned with far-right ideologies and seek nothing but harm and division. Um, I know that certainly it is the truth that GCN has taken a, a hard line on this group, this uh, the LGB group. The couple of articles, one debunking the misinformation outlined by LGB and Ireland, and also another article a bit which fisk to the group i suppose you could say it's a new irish anti-trans hate group believed to be a british import no but maybe they're not talking about that because i don't know are they far right seems like a stretch you interviewed one of the founders of this group didn't you yeah well i interviewed one of the founders of the lgb yeah, group. the lgb the, the original, yeah the, the original group. i don't i don't know how great a link they have to lgb alliance ireland i'd say they offer well, support they're, they're, and they're, advice really. I, from what i can gather i think they, if they were they would see themselves as if you like the sort of the the original the originator group which is they now disseminating itself around the world and the, you have local chapters if, if you like well i don't know if there's a formal structure maybe they're in 
maybe there isn't. But describe these people as uh, far right. I, did, I the impression I had was they were were, were kind of lefties, you know, sort of lefty second wave feminists, you know, sort of two artisanal mojitos away from revolutionary socialism. <laughs> But then again, who isn't Gary? And two, yeah, I mean, two artisanal mojitos. Oh, God, actually. An artisanal mojito. I want one. Interesting that all of these groups, these these civic society groups, like National Women's Council of Ireland is calling, most of these people are women, by the way, because they tend to, that tends to be where the, the this has been most concentrated. Well, that seems to be the battle lines. It's between what they call the TERFs, the trans-exclusionary radical feminists, and say some the radical lesbian groups, who seem to be the, the groups that are most aggressively gender critical. Is that the, is that the phrase? That would that would be the the phrasing of critical of gender theory. Yeah, would be the the broad meaning of it. And yet, the National Women's Council is calling for effectively the silencing of a group which is largely largely deals with women and women's issues and women's voices mm-hmm. in order to support a group which michael and this may be controversial to say is largely not women you mean the transgender community yes i mean the trans women right yes well it says at some stage in it and this is the i suppose the heart of the matter is it says i think somewhere in it uh gender and sex are on a spectrum and that's the heart of the thing some people believe that obviously gcn believes that gen- whatever about gender i think a lot of people think gender it's sort of in if you see gender is do we is that, is that what you think gender is performative is that the Foucault notion gender but sex is but then on the other hand a lot of people think well whatever about gender so uh, people think there are people who think that sex is not gender that sex is Except in a very, 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 very small number of people, gender is binary. That sex is binary. That human beings are sexually reproducing animals, and that sex in that context is binary. You are either male or female. You either produce uh, gametes or ovaries. Or actually, are ovaries another form of gamete? Yes. So it's it's isn't it the difference is uh, one group produces very large gametes and the other produces very small small gametes isn't that it and it's it's a size thing which is it seems odd and that that is a binary distinction now how you performatively behave in your it could be described as gender and your sexual orientation generally speaking is predicted can be predicted not generally can be pretty well predicted i mean if if this was horse racing your the capacity to predict the outcome of your sexual orientation on the basis of your what gamete produced would be a very very good bet indeed but there are still significant numbers of people who don't uh conform to that i I was i was slightly wrong there actually i i said ovaries are the gametes i think it's actually the eggs the, the gametes which is what I meant. Oh, sorry, did I say ovary? No, I meant, I, I said ovary, so I meant ova. Ovum, ova, second. One thing that annoys me about that line that sex is a spectrum and gender is a spectrum, it's when they say spectrum, the, the distribution, like the statistical distribution, it seems to me, they're putting in is equal from A to B. Yeah. Or from A to Z. Okay. Whereas even if they're right, 
And you, you can plot sex and gender as, as a, a statistical distribution if you want. But it would be so strongly bimodal, which is effectively to say that there are, there are two peaks and the vast majority of things happen there. That, I mean, it, it may be the strong, most strongly bimodal thing I've ever seen statistically graphed. But yeah, you, you can, it's technically a spectrum is just meaningless. Yeah, because I think when you say spectrum, people imagine something like a rainbow, fairly gentle curve in the middle. You, you can absolutely have something that just goes zero, zero, one, zero, zero, one, and that's where the bars are. Yeah. It's technically a spectrum. There's just two bars. I suppose the question for policymakers and for people interested in public discourse is the idea that where you have a, a disagreement of, of this nature, that you just that the that the deplatforming is a legitimate thing to seek to do. That this is the correct way to proceed in a debate. I suppose the thing is, Gary, people are writing this article and writing this article do not see this as a debate. They think that the issue is pretty well decided and closed. And that anybody who's that even by the act of saying that it's a debate, what you're actually saying is that the thing is open to question and that's undermining. On the other hand people say, Well, you know what, it is it's a valid thing to discuss it's a it's not an unreasonable thing to say well what do you mean sex is on a spectrum surely human beings sexually are binary we're male or female and then after that it's what we're talking is performative and surely that we if you want to have a discussion about that then you should but we can have it you should be able to have that in public and if you're confident of your position informed both by the phys- the hard sciences and by the social sciences that will be convincing to people, but then you should front up and have that debate in public. Yeah, I, I think one other thing to, to note is that they talk as if they will never lose social or cultural power. Because mm. this principle, that if you say something that we don't like, we will just have you deplatformed, is something that 30 years ago, or 40 years ago, would have been happily wielded against these people. And if they ever lose power again... May equally be used against them. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And this is something we've talked about before, and I've said to other people that it, it it kind of amuses me when I see that the most v- v- passionate defenders of absolutism in free speech today are people that I would consider to be really quite conservative. And when I say conservative, I don't mean libertarians. I mean actual conservatives. And the reason is because once because the you know, I can't remember the, the the quote, but you know the one I mean, where it says, "If you want to know who's in power, go to see who the censor is." Yeah, I I think that is the case now. It's mostly the conservatives and libertarians who are most concerned with free speech. Forty years ago, I'm not convinced that these same self people who are conservatives would have been that enthusiastic about free speech. No, no, I I I don't think this is any superiority of conservative or libertarian philosophy in this regard. I think it's just if you don't have power, you want to be able to speak. Yeah. And if you have power, you don't need permission to speak because you just speak. You just speak. But underlying very people who are entrenched in power, as you as you say, there is it. It makes people historically short sighted. There is the assumption we shall always be in power, and we shall never have to defend because we we will hold the high we we hold the high high moral uplands, and not just the moral uplands, but the actual uplands, if you like. But then the day will come. The day, And that's the thing about history. History, as unlike, you know, I, I'm going to say something controversial here, Gary, but you know, I think that Marx was wrong 
about what? Because he was quite positive about capitalism. He was, he was. Um, he was very positive about capitalism. He was, but uh, he believed that history had a destination, the dialectic of history, and that there was this inexorable, inevitable process, that there were stages through which we would all go, you know, from whatever the, the, the early bits was and went through feudalism and mercantilism and then capitalism and through capitalism to socialism and then socialism to communism, is it? Something like that. I don't think history goes in straight lines. I don't think it goes in any direction. I think it goes up, goes up and down and, and up and in and out and then it goes backwards. Uh, and eventually everybody gets fucked over by history. Uh, so, yeah, I think the idea that you're always going to have power and then for you you're always going to be in control is, 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 is a bad one. And that is ultimately why we subscribe to the notion of rights for everybody, especially for the ones we, especially for the rights of the people we don't like. Absolutely. It's why democracies don't work and why most stable ones are republics. Because a constitution is a sign you don't trust people. And they shouldn't be trusted. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? I was, I was thinking, Gary, thinking I was the other day, uh, many, many years ago when I was a student, what my my principal locus of interest for my last year was uh, constitutions, constitutionality and constitutional laws. And I was very interested in the difference between the... People talk about the Enlightenment, you know? And they say the Enlightenment as if it's, as if it's this monovocal, univocal thing. Whereas, in fact, there are lots of different Enlightenments. There was a Dutch Enlightenment, French Enlightenment, Prussian Enlightenment, a Virginian Enlightenment in the United States. There was a Scottish Enlightenment, which, by the way, had significant input from the Irish, but we, we never had, we never talked about the Irish. Why was the American Republic more successful than the French Republic? Why was it more persistent? And I think it goes back to the thing that ultimately it's that sense that the French seem to have had, but first of all, they weren't religious. And I think that actually is part of it. It's not that religion, shall we say, in and of itself is a stabilizing influence in a society, although it may well be. But rather, the Americans still carried with them that Christian sense of original sin. In other words, that man was a defect, was defective morally, in a sense. To use that phrase from Kant, that you will make nothing straight from the, the, the crooked timber of man. The French had a far more optimistic idea you know, that we'll set up temples to reason and we'll strip away the superstition and it'll all be lovely. We'll all go back as if we were uncontaminated by civilization, like in this Rousseauian stage of nature. And of course, what happens is you end up cutting everybody's head off, Gary, until Napoleon rises up and starts to say, right, lads, I, it is, Napoleon is, in a sense, I, the Republican figure. And I mean that in the, in the United States political sense. People like Napoleon. People like Napoleon. There was, there was one point I meant to mention when I, we were talking about sex as a distribution. Sex, there are many ways to, to actually determine sex. Gametes, the things that Michael and I were discussing, sperm and uh, ovary, they don't exist on a spectrum. They're one or the other. Now, hermaphrodites, as in true biological hermaphrodites, can produce both sets. Yes. But in that instance, there's still only two types. It's just a very rare... Uh, condition which allows people to uh, produce both. Then you have intersex, which in which a person will still produce just one type of gamut. There's no, there's still no spectrum there. There's two. Yes. Also, true biological hermaphroditism is actually quite rare. Very rare. Hmm. But it does happen. I mean, oh, it does. Yeah. It does happen. But anyway, I just wanted to to touch on that one because that's 
This is about the control of information and who should have the right to be heard by other people. And I don't know, I, is it a good or a bad sign that we're seeing so much focus on trying to shut down debate on certain issues? Because if you are absolutely secure in your power, you don't need to stop other people talking because what they're saying is simply so ridiculous, so out there, the public just won't listen to it because you hold all of the ground. And I don't know is this, if this is a sign that they think that certain things might be slipping. Um, well, I suppose what they're seeing is an organised uh, response from a, a, a group, which is probably the first time on the, this particular issue we've seen that happen. It's also it's coming. It seems to be predominantly from women, uh, not just women, but a lot of we, these women are, are queer women and activists historically so it's a different kind of opponent i don't want to say enemy although i think maybe that might be inaccurate so mm. there's a sense that this is a, a more substantial more potentially difficult source of opposition than the kind of people they've had to deal with up to now we shall see. I, I, I imagine this is not going to... Just before we move on from gay community news, there was an article I wanted to mention. I'll include a link to it, or an archive of it, in the bottom of the podcast. And It's an article headlined, Hate Crime Bill 2020 Enters Second Stage of Shannon. And I thought this was particularly interesting, because I had written for Gripped on the uh, Hate Crime Bill and this debate, this particular debate, which I had watched and then reread the transcript of before writing up. Mm-hmm. And what is interesting about it is that both the Gript article and the GNC article are perfectly correct. There's nothing in either I can find that is false. Right. But news is a construct. How information and happenings actually becomes news is a process. It's not natural. Journalists choose and editors choose what to bring forward and what not to and I thought this was just a really good reminder, because I assume like people who listen to this may read Gript or may not, I, I don't really know, and to be honest, it doesn't really bother me either way. But if you do, it's worth looking at this bill just to see how much of a difference the, the stance of the journalist writing it can be. Now, I think that the article I wrote is far more honest in that it accepts that senators were broadly for this, but then also says, look, this is they all kick the shit out of it on legal grounds. This doesn't mention any issue with legal grounds at all. Mm -hmm. This just says, it quotes from the parts of the senator's speeches that I didn't quote from, about how, you know, this is absolutely needed for victims and things of that nature. And you would come to very different impressions of the bill if you'd only read one of these articles. And that, I think, think is, is why I have been quite open about internal biases and that I don't think biased media is a problem. I think media that is biased but tells you it's not biased is a problem because if you know it's biased then you you should always have that concern of well how much of this is just a particular view what's not in this yes and i i i am i think i am fair to a fault i think in the opinion of the gripped editorial team i am fair to far beyond what is required (laughs) but i i don't like things to be i don't like to mislead people this, I think, to me, is absolutely accurate. Nothing wrong with it. But it doesn't have any information in it that could be construed as negative. If you got your... It doesn't mention any legal issue with it. 
but nearly every senator who stood up mentioned there were legal issues with this bill. Yeah, that was that was to me to be honest, Barry, that was the most distressing thing about the debate, wasn't necessarily the fact that there were only two senators that might have shared the, the opinion that they and me had, but rather that senator after senator, including people who teach law to the children, stood up and said, "This is a piece of shit." But you know what? It's our piece of shit, so we support it. I mean, that, that was, I mean, the article I wrote, I think, was called the the hate crime, criminal justice hate crime bill is beneath the dignity of the Shannon. And it was mostly just a recap of the debate, but then going on to say that the bill is so highly flawed that regardless of whether or not you support this, it's a joke. Mm-hmm. Like, it can't go anywhere. There's, there's nothing to it. And you could absolutely do it in a better way that you then have to deal with the merits of the actual argument. But, I mean, it's it's just, it's all over the place. Yeah. But no, I just, I wanted to bring this article quickly to people's attention. As I said, I will put it in the bottom of the podcast because sometimes it's worth reading stuff from people who are deeply ideologically opposed because a lot of the time they're not lying in what they say. And a lot of the time they're not dishonest or have a bad, um, mm-hmm. bad mentality. It's just, they consider these things important and the legal issues to be minor things that can be fixed later. So they don't get mentioned and thus they don't become news. Well, I suppose that you're talking about one of the, the, the central insights of the postmodernists uh, is that there, the notion that there are there's so many, if you're telling a story or you're writing history or you're doing journalism, that you just tell the facts. But of course, the problem is that there are an, an almost inf- infinite number of facts. And therefore, every story, every piece of history is the selection of facts that the historian or the author makes. And it's perfectly possible that two people could write a history or a story about exactly the same thing and select completely different sets of facts. And therefore, the, the conclusion of the, of, the, of the radical postmodernist is to say that fundamentally all we have are narratives and we have to navigate our way through those narratives and make choices. I think that, like a lot of the stuff with the postmodernists, they, they, it's a bit like, yeah, you have a point, but lads, you bring it way too far. Yeah, I mean, the, the existence of bias does not mean it can't be countered, or you can't ask yourself, or how would someone else see this? It's in fact quite easy to do. Whether or not you actually do anything with it is a different thing. But it reminds me of when we were talking about the... Um, the protests against some of the COVID-19 restrictions and some of the newspapers had said that certain ones were far right because there were people there from the National Party or from a couple of groups that were right wing, one or two that may have been far right. Yeah. And we're saying that the people who protest always have nutters at them. Sure. The nature of them. Yes, yes, yes. Those groups don't have the ability to get a couple of thousand people onto the street. So the decision about when a protest is a protest at which those people were at and when it becomes a right wing or a far right protest, that is the point where bias and editorializing come in. In the same, like you could have the water protests would have been very easy to say this is just a grouping of you know, far left communists and Trotskyites, Stalinists. And you, I mean, they were there. Yeah, sure. Because of course they would be there because it was a chance to grow politically more popular. But that doesn't mean that those marches were those things. No. And it would be unfair to me to characterise them as such. Not that, unlike you, fairness is not something that keeps me up at night. Uh, but yes, I, I, take, I take your point. I thought that article was very fair to all of the senators involved. 
until such a point as someone called me to put the view to me that it was not fair to the senators involved, or actually, sorry, that it was fair, but being fair didn't stop it being deeply insulting. Yes. In fact, it may have made it worse. Well, you know what, guys, sometimes the truth is deeply insulting. I mean, it is. It is, I would say, the worst piece of legislation I've ever seen debated in the Senate on a technical uh, drafting level. It's, it's horrendous. Michael, it has two fucking definitions of what it means to measure, and they don't match. Yeah, that's 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 bad, in fairness. That's the kind of thing that you can imagine a high court judge or a Supreme Court judge being a little bit sarcastic about that kind of thing and recommending that maybe the legislature paid a little bit more care and attention to the laws that it ended up dumping under their lordship's noses. My my favourite moment when I was talking to one uh, one of the professors on it and I was asking about the crimes it applied to. I was saying it's, it's actually very unusual. I was like, oh, what about... Like, well, several of them don't exist anymore. But yet they've drawn them out for uh, to say that they can now be hate crimes. So what do you mean they don't exist? They've been repealed. They don't, they don't exist. They're not crimes anymore. They're not on the books. Also the realisation that um, assault leading to rape is a crime. Oh, yeah. the sexual harassment ones. But rape can't actually be a hate crime because apparently they just forgot to put that one in. But got everything around it. There's assault leading to rape. There's aggravated, actual rape itself. As it, it seems slipped, slipped through their notice. But no, it's 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 well worth um, looking at because again, as we said, this is mostly teamed about information. And unless you, you should always assume the information you're getting, even if people are trying to be fair, they may just not consider something news. I mean, I remember talking to David Quinn ages ago about the Irish Times, and he was just saying, well. Like they don't consider these things important, so why would they write about them? Because they hear the story and they're like, oh, Grant, they just move on. It's just not important to their worldview in relation to certain things. Can I have just a, a quick aside, Michael, yeah. on the concept of lying? This, if, as I'm getting older, this is actually starting to piss me off more and more. Where people will have a debate about something, and then someone will say, so you're a liar, or you lied. A lie is a deliberate misrepresentation of truth. People can just be fucking wrong about stuff sometimes. Yeah, lie. When you lie, there is a. There's also the intent to deceive. Someone can just be wrong. Yeah, like if you ask me what the capital of Upper Volt is, and I say to you that it's uh, Ogadugo, I think I'm wrong in that. Actually, now that I'm saying it, I don't know. Uh, that may be the capital of Mali. I'm not sure. But you take my point. If I said the capital of Ireland was Drogheda, I would simply be wrong. I wouldn't actually be lying to you. Assuming that I knew the capital, I didn't know the capital of Ireland was. You can be wrong simply on a matter of fact. You're not being deliberate. You're not. The intention is not to deliberately mislead. I can see people saying that's a really minor distinction, but I don't think it is. I think it's actually quite large. It is, and it's also it's connected. Another, you can be wrong, and uh, or you can be immoral. Uh, for example, uh, there's a debate. I mean drag it in, but there's a debate going on at the moment, there's the, uh, the there's sort of the Carrick report in the United States where it was reported that this the prelate was involved with sleeping with seminarians. Now, at the time the Vatican was informed about this fact. Then there was further investigation. Soundings were taken and a number of bishops, senior bishops in the United States assured the Vatican and assured the Pope that they that they that they they believe that it wasn't true that there was no truth to it, 
and the Pope believed them. Now it looks like the Pope was wrong, but that doesn't necessarily. But it doesn't necessarily mean that he was, in some sense, morally implicated. Or he was immoral. Now he may have it may have been a dereliction of duty. He may have. She maybe you could argue he should have inquired further. But it is possible simply to be wrong, but not. But not to have some kind of deep moral implications for you. It, it also it seems to indicate that you know, no one on who disagrees with you understands the issue or is arguing in good faith. That, that's, they must yeah. be lying. They are actively trying to mislead you, and it's just getting them to admit they're lying. You can't tell them a piece of information they didn't know already. But isn't that what's underneath all of these things? Is ultimately is the belief that everybody who disagrees with you is in bad. It goes back. I think is it Rousseau, famously said. The, that what one of the things we must cultivate if we are to have a civil society is that if when we disagree that we must refrain from believing that our, our opponent is either uh, mad, bad, was it mad, bad, or something else? There are three things. You either be immoral, insane, or maybe just are, are a liar, speaking in bad faith. But they have we have to cultivate the possibility that the person speaking to us is speaking in good faith, and is reasonable, but they're simply just mistaken as to the nature of, of, of the argument or the facts of the thing. And it is not something that we, we should not hate them for. But we, we, we speak about it as if it was a modern, modern thing. It is all, it, this has always been the nature of political discourse. But we always look to ascribe to people that disagree with us. Not simply that they're wrong, but that they're wrong and they're wrong and they're bad or they're stupid. That's it, stupid. And I mean, you can be immoral without lying. And I think a great example in the letter we just went through, Amnesty International signed a letter saying that politicians should no longer provide representation. Amnesty International, kind of their wheelhouse, Amnesty International Ireland is calling on people to be stripped of political representation. Yeah. And I think that's kind of a big deal for Amnesty International. And I think it's immoral. They're not wrong. It's no, there's no fact here. It's just immoral. It certainly would seem to be, at the very least, a betrayal of the kind of values that originally animated the organisation when it was established. It's not a good line when that is the, at, at the very least. I mean, at the very least, you've betrayed everything that made you what you are. <laughs> yeah, it's not, it's not exactly a ringing endorsement, is it? But from that to the study I talked about, just quickly... So a study came out there, I think it was during the week, and it was related to female mentorships. Very popular, as you would imagine, uh, Michael. Yeah. So it, it was titled the, uh, the Association Between Early Career Informal Mentorship in Academic Collaborations and Junior Author Performance. Yes. I'm riveted already. Oh, absolutely. And what they did was they went through uh, published papers about... They found about 3 million papers, scientific papers, where they could identify what they called a mentor-protege pair. Yes. And they basically did this. A load of stuff went into this, and there's a load of assumptions that may not hold up as to when there is a a mentor-protege pair, but basically an older mentor helping a younger scientist in the field. And they measured it. And they, they reached out to, I think, 2,000 of these people, uh, asking them about the relationship with the person they thought was their mentor. And I think 95% of the people who responded uh, accepted that that person had helped them or given them advice in at least one area of their work. 
So they did do some chase up. The problem is this. Now this this paper was published in Nature Communications, which is not a bad journal as these things go. And I'm going to guess from the name that all the people involved in this were women, which may help them here. What they then what they did was they looked at how mentors helped people perform on a number of different metrics. And then a significant amount of the paper is about how mentor protege pairings work when there are different when there are women versus men. And what they found was that um, having if you were a female student, having a female mentor is bad for you. Doesn't help. In fact, it hurts you. And the more female mentors you have, the more you are hurt. It also negatively impacted on the female mentors as well. And and they were very reasonable about it in saying, look, this is just preliminary work. Obviously, we can't take in, at, at the level we're studying this, we can't take in anything uh, below this because it's so high level. Okay. And they were very much on the sort of, well, you know, equality is very important and we've got to look to maximize it. But if this is correct and there should be more research, then the idea of mentorship may need to be something that we re-examine because it looks like female scientists are helped by male scientists and they're hurt by female mentors. Yes, which is not great news for the sisterhood. Yeah, unless you're the type of woman who starts talking about things like female intersexual competition or things of that nature. But those aren't popular women, and so we ignore them because, Michael, they're low status and we can't afford to lose any more of our own. Okay, take your word on that. So, this study went down like a fucking lead balloon. Now, it's worth pointing out this study was published in Nature. And it's worth because Nature is one of the most prestigious and highly regarded magazines in the, 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 the world of academic science. It's not like the Beano or the Dandy, not that I want to disrespect the Beano, but as science journals go, nature is up near the tippy top of the tree. Yeah, no, it was. It was Nature Communications because nature actually has multiple um, peer-reviewed scientific journals under the, the banner. Uh, how would you say it's part of the... Nature family. Family, yes, or the... So this this went pearly. Now, if you try and access the paper now on Nature, it has a little proviso on it, a little editor's note, saying that um, readers should know that the paper is subject to criticisms that are being considered by the editors. And I can't remember the last time I saw a note like this on a paper, Michael, a paper that hadn't been shown to have methodological flaws and which they were investigating the extent of. What happened here is they published this, and then the open letters started, and the response came pretty hard and fast that this paper was not just wrong, that it was harmful to the cause of women, which was interesting because the paper noted if the goal is the further advancement of women and this information is correct, then you should simply take this into account and design programs around it. And actually, everyone will be better off then. Right. It kind of reminded me, reminded me of the Dramore thing with Google, mm. where it was just someone who was asked, you know, uh, how would you make these programs better? And just some autistic programmer went, they actually want me to tell them that. As opposed to knowing it's not an actual question. You're not meant to come back. No, you're not supposed to. 
even Science Magazine, it's which is again very widely read in the space, mm. is kind of putting the boot in. <laughs> Just to sort of how dare they publish these things? Yeah, you know, if there were methodological pro- serious methodological problems, you would, you would have thought that that would have occurred. It would. This is a peer reviewed article, so you would have thought in the peer reviewed process, if there was any obvious methodological problems. They would have, they would that would have come up. They would have raised that with the authors. They would have sent it back to the authors for correction or, um, or amendation, and it would come back. So, on the face of it, there were no obvious ones. No, that's not to say that there won't be other issues. There can't be. But the, it's just a very odd idea in a scientific journal that you, should, and like, the comment from science really seemed to be, that. You you shouldn't be publishing this kind of thing. It, it didn't seem to be a kind of a rigorous point by point deconstruction of the argument, of the evidence, of the methodology. It was rather, you know, you shouldn't be just publishing this kind of thing. And that's, I don't know, it's, it's a bit of a worry. What has also been quite interesting to see is... Um... I've been looking through kind of the Twitter responses to this and the social media responses and the open letters of this and the amount of people who are scientists who are who have doctorates and postdoctorate qualifications and not always areas related to this because in any scientific controversy you always get like the sociologists chiming in like you don't even know how to read a chart fuck off <laughs> Go back to playing with your dirt piles. <laughs> Balanced as always, Gary. Oh, you should hear me on anthropologists, Michael. Yeah, indeed. Mm. You and Margaret Mead, oh, it never ends. But the amount of people who start talking about the emotional impact that this paper has had on them, and how terrible it made them feel, and then proceed to attack it, and you're sort of going, maybe you should take a back seat here. It was a wonderful reminder of the um, the old saying that science doesn't advance theory by theory, it advances funeral by funeral. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. They're just for the, the illumination of the listener, if they have never heard that before. You, you actually see after... When theories tend to change, and when, when disciplines tend to change, is when people who formulated immensely influential theories die because once they're gone other theories can start to move into the space and what you often find is that people who came out with influential theories that were kind of they just don't stand up by the time that's realized they have amassed a status and connections in the community that means that anyone coming forward with new information will tend to not be believed and their work won't be as published but eventually that person will die and then many of their accolades will die and then science moves on one grand funeral after another. Yeah, people are social animals. And in the same way that journalists are biased and probably the most dishonest people you'll ever meet, so are scientists. <laughs> so are scientists, yes. They're, they're very, very fine people. I, I've gone through a lot of this, and the methodological flaws in the study are dealt with in the study. They themselves accept the limitations of it. And they themselves say, well, this is further work that could be done, or this is further work that could be done. They do make some comments in the kind of discussion area where they're sort of going, well, it's possible that female mentorship is um, 
isn't uh, is is just damaging, and that while what was it? it was female proteges with female mentorships, both people suffer. Female protege with male mentorship, only the uh, mentor, the male mentor suffers. The male mentor suffers. Yeah, and they they didn't provide a reason for that because I don't think they had the data. But you could say, I mean, it's, it could be something as simply as spending additional time with people is drawing you away from work. I don't know. It, it, it didn't try and answer those questions because it couldn't answer those questions. Right. But now, I mean, I, I would suspect that this will be getting uh, retracted at some point, regardless of what the um, the authors want, because nature doesn't like this. They don't like the criticism they're taking for it. The vast majority of scientific research published on an annual basis is total, total garbage. Most academic papers are read by basically nothing, or by no one. No one, yeah. Even some of the most famous experiments in fields like psychology, psychiatric science, medicine, sociology, to the extent that they do experiments of any kind, mm-hmm. are totally, uh, when people have tried to replicate them, they failed routinely. Yeah, replica. This, this is big. It's it's become such a almost a cliche, the, the the crisis of of replication that it. I've I've noticed recently that it's almost become a non-issue. If you say to people, "Well, yeah, is it replicable?" They go, "Ah, well, you know, come on, that's a bit of an old saw now, isn't it? Can you replicate it?" Almost like we decided since we can't do it, we're just going to ignore that. We're not bothering, not doing that thing anymore. The whole replicable. Uh, thing with the experiments yeah, we're not, we discovered that really wasn't working for us yeah I th- there's actually been a big pushback against replication in certain parts of the scientific community which has been fascinating to see uh, there is a feeling that those doing the replication are uh, taking a little bit too much glee in this and you know should take more account effectively Michael of the status of the people whose uh, work they're cutting to pieces and well, to yes. give them greater control over the replication tests. <laughs> you would have thought so. It's shameful, people. Michael, just people going around disproving theories that you've built your life's work on and saying, actually, the stats on this are terrible and can't replicate it. Yeah, and that's just, uh, again, it's a question of being picky. I mean, then you also have the rampant p-hacking. It's just not a great time for some of the scientific fields. So this, my, my point here on this is not to just go into a thing about the state of science in general. It's There are papers routinely published in fairly high-ranking journals that are way worse than this. Yes. Do not accept that they have methodological flaws that make grand sweeping claims that they cannot back up using sample sizes that would be embarrassing to the Irish Heart Foundation, which means, you know, below 16 at least. <laughs> Yeah, you're never going to let that one die, are you? I'm never going to let that one. No, they, they can go right to hell. Um, so for this is being signaled out, not because of methodological weaknesses, but because people can signal it out. And it, it is an area that they don't like because it is uncomfortable and it goes against their beliefs in the area. That's all this is. This is just a display of power. So these guys, let's say the, these... These academics. Mm-hmm. If these academics aren't ideologically dedicated to the area, let's just say this is something they did and they found these really interesting results on gender. 
and then they decide to write up more about it, which is kind of, when you look at the format of the actual paper, that's kind of how it looks to me. Like they did the initial testing and then found this out about gender and decided they would just write more extensively on it. Okay. So you, you're these guys. You're not ideologically motivated. You just thought it was interesting. It was a scientific question. Kind of not interesting the way that worked out. Yeah, that's curious. Let's look at that. Yeah, let's, let's do it that. Perfectly legitimate, perfectly reasonable for a scientist to do. So you get your, pu- your paper published in Nature and then you get this. And I will bet you that the authors of this by, that point, by this point have already had academics within their universities and within their spheres reach out to them about this paper and tell them it should be retracted or that they can't work with them and things of that nature. Because I've talked to various academics that this has happened to you. These are very small social spheres in some of the academic areas. You kind of know most of the people, depending on the field you're in. So are these people ever going to publish anything else on this? And then the other thing is, and part of the reason why you do this so publicly, is so that no one else publishes anything on this. And you can then direct the development of scientific information, not by changing any of the facts on the ground, but just by scaring the shit out of people. (laughs) The actual people who would carry it out, and making it clear that there is a social cost to this that you are not going to want to pay because no one will defend you when it happens. Well, I suppose that's the kind of thing that, say, agree or disagree with her. Is it Ray Deborah So? Dr. Deborah So? would say that basically that's why she uh, left uh, the, the Academy was because her particular opinions on gender were considered to be too heterodox, too problematic. Yeah, it was Deborah So. So that it was pointless. She wasn't going to get published. She wasn't going to advance. If she stayed in the area of her pers- her interest. Uh, so she said, well, well, get out. And that would seem to me, for the purposes of science, the way that science would advance to be a problem. But uh, listen, I, we've, we've previously done interviews with academics on this podcast, I think two, who openly said that they were largely chased out of academia because they had made comments about transgenderism particularly. Um, and it was just decided that, no, you don't get to study ants anymore. <laughs> ants. Like, what, what does ants have to do with this? And we're like, no, you just, you don't get to do this anymore. You will never get tenure. You will never have a comfortable time here. And both of them subsequently left academia. It's just, you cannot talk about innate biological differences. You cannot talk about transgenderism. You cannot investigate anything to do with races. Yeah, I mean, if we look at the experience of Charles Murray, that, I mean, Murray is in many, many campuses uh, a, a pariah. But it's not just Murray, but anybody that's caught quoting Murray or reading Murray or associating with Murray, he be, has, can very quickly become a hissing and a byword within the community now because of the work that he did on IQ. No, you can, you can disagree with his work on IQ. You can disagree with his conclusions on IQ. I know Thomas Sowell in 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 a review and a couple of artists uh, disagreed with uh, him him quite uh, vigorously and deconstructed it to my dissatisfaction because 
well, I believe Thomas Sowell pretty well automatically when it comes to numbers. And if he says the numbers are showing this rather than that, well, then I'm going to believe Thomas. But he still remained friendly and had a relationship with Murray and regarded some of the scholarship as being important and useful. But the IQ question, I mean, I know you're, you're aware of the, the, and anybody who isn't should look them up, the Glenn Lowry and, and um, John McWhorter, who do a, a, a talk on uh, blogging heads, they're what they self-described to the black guys on, on blogging heads, have discussed this whole issue of IQ and whether or not you should actually do scientific research on IQ and race. Not just IQ and race, but IQ and any factor that might possibly um, affect it. Because it, it is now pretty well the standard, from what I understand from their discussions and others, that this is not a subject you are supposed to even think about researching. Because the implications, the apparent implications of what the what your intent might be are too nasty. So you just leave it alone. Just it is not to be investigated. Now, just on the when I say that you can't talk about these things and you can't publish on them, you can once for a while. It'll probably be retracted, but you can publish. You'll destroy your career in doing so. And I've seen a couple of people immolate themselves trying to go, but it's just what the research said to people who do not care. Do not care at all. What was it, Jonathan Haidt's line? That um, everyone has sacred values. And when your statements start moving from, it start encroaching on those sacred values, it stops being, there is no longer a debate. There is no longer yeah. a discussion. If you're in a discussion or debate, and you reach a point where you have to choose between the truth and what you hold sacred, then the truth gets thrown underneath the on the, underneath the wheels of the of the oncoming juggernaut, you, that's that is the nature of human beings. How what, Michael? If the truth is your sacred value, ah, I see, Gary. Oh, there you go, with ah, grasshopper. Ah, yes, as the Buddha said. Uh, well, then I presume you throw yourself under the wheels of the juggernaut in an act of immolation. Height's point is, I suppose, because height is not a radical pessimist is that it's only it's by becoming aware of those things that we feel are our sacred truths that are our religious beliefs or our totems that we can advance because we when we are in debates that we that it gives us the capacity to become aware of oh actually am i doing this am i actually Am I being? Am I arguing in good faith here? Am I being truly open? Because this is touching. I'm. I now know this is touching on one of the things, and you can make a. You can make an effort. You can to try and to some degree overcome your tendency just to stop, say no, so thus far and no further. But yes, of course, if truth is just, truth is your highest uh, uh, thing, and then then of course, Gary, that's. Uh, that's a level of enlightenment I would far more safe, I expect from you than from me. Well, I mean, I didn't go into academia because I was told that my areas of research would never be allowed and I would spend the rest of my professional life in front of ethics committees. 
<laughs> so <laughs> I may be biased on the academia front. It's what I expect from them since that point. And I have never seen anything since then that uh, that has convinced me I was wrong. I was also, by the way, told that by multiple people who were trying to help me. Yeah. They weren't trying to, to stop me in any way. They were simply pointing out that they weren't, this is just what's happening. They weren't threatening you. They were warning you. Yeah, it was more of a, have you considered maybe something nice on like developmental psychology? <laughs> yeah. And I was like, no, no, I, I like these things. Like, well, we don't do those anymore. We'll never do those anymore. And uh, good luck to you. Too many academics these days. Oh, God, far, far too many. Far too many. Too many PhDs. They're all eating each other. They are. They're all competing for the same amount of tiny jobs. And then when you look at some of the people who've actually managed to get work, I mean, there are people, and Twitter is fantastic. Twitter is wonderful. I mean, yes, it's totally destroyed the prestige of certain jobs by bringing them really close to people. But I love seeing, like, one of my favourite things on Twitter, Michael, is to see a highly accredited academic get into a debate or a fight with someone who has, like, an anime character as their avatar <laughs> and just get absolutely whipped. Yeah. Just trounced. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's beautiful to see. But the, I think you see some of these people and you see their, their social media and you see how they think about things and how they phrase them. And it, one, it's a wonderful example that anyone can actually become a professor in Oxford if you're willing to lower your standards enough to say anything. <laughs> but two, you just sort of go, you just shouldn't be an academic. You'd probably be happier not being an academic. Why do we, why do we have so many academics? And why is the standard so bad? Well, it's like everything. It's not necessarily that the standard is that bad, but there's, there's, there's a distribution. And it used to be the distribution was a much smaller distribution. Now it's a much bigger distribution. So the graph has changed in shape. I, I think that that's right. The, 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 the average quality has gone down, but you still have the people you always had who were just phenomenal. No, yeah, you, you, got, you, you got the guys. As anybody who's ever, who has listened to this regularly will know that I, in this, uh, a fan of the old Schumpeter thing, because Schumpeter predicts this. And it's part of Schumpeter's prediction of the ultimate uh, defeat of capitalism, which I used to think when I was a young, callow youth was why Schumpeter was wrong. And now I realise, of course, that it's why Schumpeter is right, that in fact capitalism has devoured itself. He says that the problem is that you, when you produce so much wealth, so much surplus wealth, and you become more and more efficient and the society becomes more and more wealthy and people get more, have more and more leisure time, that what you... you the, the number of people who go to school get expands and then the number of people that you go to university expands. And eventually we have, you, you produce a society which is this massive number of people who are, academics are indeed, even worse, Gary, intellectuals. And they're all out there and they're all desperately competing for jobs and they're not that many jobs and what jobs there are, that tremendously well paid. But they are in the business of forming ideas and forming minds and they inhabit places like the media and other like that and they look around them they see the world and they see oiks horrible horrible oiks uncultured unlettered people who make millions and millions of pounds and noodles and noodles of money doing things like trading for fruit juice and pork bellies and stocks and shares and foreign currencies and all that kind of stuff 
And they say, look, it's wrong, it's wrong, because we are better and more important than them. We are radically undervalued. This society has gone wrong. So they inevitably say, they, this, you've got this bunch of people deeply unhappy who are in charge of educating the children. And they come to the conclusion that the society is fundamentally rotten at the core because other people who are not as nice or as clever as they are getting paid far more money and highly, far more highly rewarded and regarded. I mean, how right is it that the average plumber, particularly if they own their own business, which many do, is getting paid more and has let de less debt than someone with an anthropology PhD who's possibly teaching yeah. as a professor somewhere? Depending on where you are, the, the salary range is massively. I think one of the other areas you can see it, Michael, just before we, we close up, yeah. is media. Media has become... It used to be that if you wanted to get a job in media, you would go to the regional papers and you'd, you'd work there. And you'd work your way up. And then you'd get to the nationals. And reporting and journalism were crafts. They were effectively just trades. Yeah, but... You have right at the beginning of what you're, uh, in a sense, uh, addressed the problem. You didn't say it used to, when you wanted to work in journalism, you would go to start. No, you said when you wanted to work in media, because people don't work in journalism anymore, they work in media. And that in itself, I think, is instructive. To a certain extent, but I, I think... People were, used to be reporters. They're not even reporters anymore. They're journalists. Now, we're all journalists. Once upon a time, a journalist was a very specific kind of thing in a newspaper. Most of the people in a newspaper were reporters. And that was a craft. That was a trade. I feel, like, I feel like journalism is to you what decimation is to me. Uh, possibly. Possibly this is true. Everyone else is using it in a certain way, but you just will not let that go. No, I, I won't. This, this is one of the small hills I'm prepared to die on. But so, it used to be, it was a craft, and it was very... It was fairly open to people from most socioeconomic uh, uh, groupings. Yeah. So you had a lot of kind of working class uh, journalists and reporters. It has become increasingly middle class it has become increasingly the purview of people who did you know journalism and media in dcu and have degrees from it and these people one thing i've noticed actually recently because i've been reading a lot more tabloids just because i realized that i didn't read a lot of tabloids and sometimes they actually do really good stuff what i've noticed is that the standard of writing in most of the tabloids that i've read is better than the broadsheets. It is just, it is better constructed. It is better done. There is more of a sign of someone who thinks this is a craft and that it should be good. I absolutely, we were talking about this before I was saying that I I, I had been I'd been reading some of the, the English and the Irish tabloids and I absolutely agree that they're, they're not interested in showing off. It's not flashy. It's not about a display of erudition or culture or, oh gosh, I know so much about this. It's about communicating. Communicating a story in a powerful, impactful and clear way. And they do it really, really well. Not all of them, maybe, but a lot of them. And they do it really well. They also are, when it comes to quite a few stories that are, shall we say, more controversial, I find them more impartial because they're still dedicated maybe because they still have this notion of reporting their job is to take notes and report the story 
I've noticed that as well. I mean, there are times when they will go far to the side on something in a way a broadsheet just wouldn't. But I, again, I think that that is, you look at it and you know that they have taken a position on it. Usually because they'll just say, we have taken a position on that. And that I think is, is perfectly fine. It is the slow, slightly tilted, but repeated constantly bias of the broadsheets I actually think is, is quite damaging. Whereas, yeah, I, I think you're right. I think they tend to be more factual. I think they tend to be better written. They don't have anywhere near the prestige, and a lot of them are basically not online. So they kind of semi-exist to a lot of Irish professionals. But I think that they're doing some really good work, and they actually seem to care about readability, which, God knows, those who have read my Gripta articles may uh, note I am not the most concerned with. Yeah. I try. I, I do try, but I write like I talk, and then you end up with like a 400-word-long sentence that has subclauses everywhere. You don't get enough of the Oxford semicolon, but I keep trying to slip one in to grift. <laughs> they just won't let me. Yeah, you and your Oxfords. <coughs> anyway, I think the Oxford semicolon is the usual punctuation point, a useful punctuation point, shall we say, uh, to draw this to a close and bring it indeed to a full stop. Yes. Well, I hope the, the show on information has been informative. And if it has, well, come back on Wednesday anyway. We'll probably do something more entertaining then. All the best. <laughs>